1: Thank you for downloading this episode of New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new book on some area of world sport, and we talk with the author. My guest for this episode is Charles Fountain, associate professor of journalism at Northeastern University in Boston. Chuck is the author of two previous books looking at the cultural history of American sport. One, a biography of iconic sports writer Grantland Rice, and the other, a history of baseball's spring training. He returns to baseball with his new book, a history of one of the sport's most notorious and influential episodes, the Black Sox scandal. The book is titled The Betrayal, the 1919 World Series and the Birth of Modern Baseball published in 2015 by Oxford University Press. As a historian and teacher of journalism, Chuck is especially interested in how the scandal of the World Series fix was presented in the press of the times. One particular episode he addresses in the book, and in our interview, is the origin of the famous line, Say it ain't so, Joe, directed from a young fan to White Sox player Joe Jackson. We also discuss in the interview the broader context of gambling and baseball, and how rumors of a fix surrounding the World Series were nothing new or unusual at the time. Chuck is an engaging writer who has crafted a vivid picture of baseball and the gambling underworld of the early 20th century. I think you'll enjoy my interview with him. My guest this week on New Books in Sports is Chuck Fountain. Chuck, welcome to the podcast.
0: Uh, Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
1: So typically we start out by asking our guests to give a uh, a bit of background about themselves. Uh, So uh, I'll ask you to um, talk about your background in in sports and journalism and and, uh, what led to your interest in researching sports history.
0: Well, I think my interest in sports history and my interest in sports, uh, have sort of always been a part of me. I was one of those kids that read those, uh, you know, juvenile biographies of, uh, great athletes. When, I do uh, too, yes. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, I've always had that sort of fascination with, uh, history, and I think that's been one of the great appeals to baseball to me is the game's history. So, uh, it sort of, uh, was natural that I would, uh, Looked to that when I was looking for a writing projects. That uh, you know, the two uh, earlier books were on Grantland Rice that I had a first book on a guy named George Frazier who was a jazz critic and a Boston columnist and a magazine writer in the 40s and 50s. But my second book was on Grantland Rice which gave me a chance to uh, look at the history of American sport in the first half of the 20th century. And then after that I wrote about uh, baseball spring training which was a project that didn't get me any sympathy at all when I was leaving on reporting trips in February and March leaving boston to go to florida <laughs> and arizona uh but you know that too was a lot of fun that was a piece of baseball history that i knew very little about until i started getting into it and i realized that the reason i did was because nobody had written about it and i felt uh, somebody should and as to this project that like every other sports history fan i read eight men out i read it when i Was a teenager and it had, you know, was a relatively new book. And I read it, I liked it then. I read it again when I was writing about Grantland Rice and writing about Grantland Rice's coverage of that 1919 World Series. And I liked it then. It was a, you know, very rich book. But as I learned a little bit more about it, I uh, learned that there were. Some, uh, you know, things that were left to be said that, uh, you know, anybody, what I've been saying is that anybody who writes about the Black Sox scandal owes a great debt to Elliot Asanoff and Eight Men Out because he kept the story alive all these years. Uh, but we also labor under a great burden because uh, he kept the story so alive that uh, the mistakes in that book have become a part of the history and uh, they shouldn't be. So, um there was the sense that, uh, you know, there were still things left to say and uh, the ability to put the story in a greater context than Eight Men Out or any of the previous uh, histories that the book had done.
1: Well, I was going to ask that. So what did you find in the course of your research that uh, that is incorrect from the conventional narrative from those who know the book Eight Men Out or the film Eight Men Out?
0: Well, um, you know, the, the two most dramatic incidents in the book and later in the film that was made from the book, I think, are Eddie Seacott being, um, you know, outraged at being denied a bonus by Charles Comiskey, which he had been promised for winning 30 games and then uh, denied because Comiskey held him out of the uh, rotation in the last weeks of the season so he would not reach 30. That was the linchpin in Seacott's involvement in both the book and uh, the film. And there's just no historical, um, you know, sourcing for that. That if you look at Seacott's salary card in the Hall of Fame, there's no mention of any bonus on his card. Not in 1919, not 1920, not 1918. That, uh, you know, there are no bonuses on any of the White Sox players' cards there. And, you know, I don't know how many bonuses there were on any salary structures back then. And it was, uh, you know, an exceedingly rare uh, provision. And there was none with Seacott. Moreover, Seacott was not held out. He pitched right up till the end of the season. He pitched last four or five games before the end of the season and he wasn't needed to uh, pitch in those last couple of games because the White Sox, it wasn't his turn, but the White Sox had clinched things, and they were setting things up so that Seacott would pitch the first game of the World Series. Uh, So there was just no historical precedent for that. It was not mentioned anywhere else. It was not mentioned by Seacott in a very forthcoming confession to Comiskey and Comiskey's lawyer just before he confessed to the grand jury, nor was it mentioned in his grand jury testimony. It was not mentioned anywhere in the voluminous history. The only place that it was mentioned uh, is in Eight Men Out, which um, leads me to conclude that the source for it was Elliot azenoff's imagination. <laughs> um, he made no bones about writing this book in dramatic uh, fashion, that he had originally conceived of it as a... Screenplay, and indeed, his first treatment of the book was as a first treatment Mm -hmm. of the story was as a screenplay. And he frankly admitted that the other dramatic scene in the book was a uh, fiction, and that's the um, threat that Lefty Williams received the night before he was to pitch the eighth and what turned out to be the final game, where the thug threatened him not only with. uh, harm to him but to his family as well. That, again, is another dramatic point. Um, Asanoff admitted to creating that character that, uh, you know, he didn't admit to the threat being a, a, a fiction, but he did admit to creating that character, and he had a very strange defense of it. He said that it was to protect himself against plagiarism.
1: And so, not only in, in looking at correcting some of these uh, some of these myths that are not based on, as you said, on any uh, sources, uh, you also found some new evidence, right, for for your book.
0: Well, there were there were two archives that. Uh, Have been around for uh, one of them has been around for a while. The other one is relatively new, at least in historical terms. But they haven't been, um, I think, fully exploited in the telling of the Black Sox story. The first of the archives is the relatively new one, that that is in the Chicago History Museum, and it was acquired by the History Museum in uh, 2008. They bought it at auction from an anonymous donor. Um, You know, there have been people that speculated that they came from the files of the Comiskey estate uh, (laughs) because they showed up uh, shortly after Charles Comiskey III passed away. but they were originally a part of the files of Alfred Austrian, who is Charles Comiskey's attorney, uh, the original Charles Comiskey's attorney. And uh, what these files show was uh, the extent of Charles Comiskey's involvement in covering up what he knew. He effectively knew that seven of his players had been compromised in that series the day the series ended. And he had actually gone to Alfred Austrian's office that day. And uh, what the two of them discussed was we need to find out what is out there for information, not so much that they could uh, dismiss the players if they found them to be complicit, but uh, so that they could determine whether or not this story was going to blow up and whether or not they could get away with signing these players for the 1920 season. So Comiskey hired a team of private investigators to follow not all but most of the players involved in the Uh, the 1919 fix. And what he determined over that winter was that there was uh, no smoking gun, that it was unlikely to blow up. And so he uh, determined that he could just continue. He could sign these players to their 1920 contracts, and the whole thing was probably going to stay on uh, just a rumor. The other thing that that archive showed was how central Comiskey was, and Alfred Austrian, his attorney, was in bringing Judge Landis into the game. And moreover, they showed that the reason they wanted to bring Judge Landis in was not to have a new strong voice that would be the center of power in the game, But so that they could take power away from Comiskey's mortal enemy, Ben Johnson, who was the president of the American League and was also the strongest voice on the three-person National Commission during those years. And he effectively had control of the National Commission, and he and Charles Comiskey hated one another. And... uh, You know, that that was the reason Comiskey, you know, used that moment, the confusion after the Black Sox story broke, to help uh, him try and bring ruin to his great enemy. Mm -hmm. In the meantime, the other very valuable archive, which is in the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown and is part of the files of Van Johnson, showed how Van Johnson was using the same moment to affect the ruin of his great enemy, Charles Comiskey. (laughs) that Johnson used the full finances and resources of the American League to aid the Cooks County State's attorney in months after the indictments of the players, that Van Johnson effectively became the investigative arm of the Cooks County State's attorney office and um, – found the witnesses that were the star witnesses at the criminal trial, persuaded them to testify, brought them to Chicago, introduced them to the investigators for the state's attorney, and uh, put them up and paid their expenses while they were in Chicago uh, waiting to testify. So those two uh, files revealed, I think, a, to this point, not told piece of the story, which was the extent to which the enmity between Charles Comiskey and Van Johnson determined how those events after the story came out would play out. Had those two um, men not hated one another, I think it is very unlikely that the story would have played out the way it it did, and also very unlikely maybe that the story would have ever come out, because the grand jury, which is the the catalyst for bringing the story out, uh, was really convened only after the presiding justice of that grand jury, Charles McDonald, contacted his friend Van Johnson and asked, would it be in... You know, your best interest, my best interest, Van Johnson wanted to bring Charles McDonald into the game as the uh, new chairman of the National Commission. And McDonald asked him, would it be in our best interests uh, to have the grand jury look into this? So the grand jury might not have uh, even looked into this were, again, it not for Johnson and Comiskey's, um, you know, very unpleasant relationship.
1: I would I would add that. it wouldn't have happened if they were still friends, because they they, as you talk about the book, they they were friends at a time. That's right. That
0: uh, you know, this uh, you know dislike for one another uh, was the ac- absolute opposite of uh, how that relationship began. They were great friends. Uh, they worked very closely together in revitalizing the Western League, and they were restless as minor leaguers, and they wanted to make their Western League, the Major League, which they did. Uh, They uh, realigned some franchises, brought them into bigger cities, and in 1901 declared that they were, at this point, no longer a party to the uh, National Agreement as a minor league and would be a uh, second Major League from that point forward. They were so successful at that, of course, that they forced the merger with the National League within two years. they were partners in bringing that to pass, and they were great friends for probably another 10 years after that. They shared an office in The Loop in Chicago and uh, vacationed together, sometimes stag, sometimes with their wives, and that uh, sort of disintegrated for reasons that are rather lost to history. We have some, you know, Small events that precipitated the beginning of the dislike, but, uh, you know, how it grew to what it was, uh, we'll probably never know. It's one of the uh, the many mysteries of the Black Sox story that
1: we'll never know. Mm -hmm. So if they, following up on your point, if they had remained friends, this all would have likely been... uh, uh uh, as you say, Comiskey and his attorney would have found out about it and then probably, uh, continued to cover it up. But, uh, you make the point that this, uh, the, the Black Sox scandal ultimately was, was good for baseball because of the context uh, in which baseball was operating, which gambling was was just a constant presence around the sport. So can you can you talk about that context that you discuss at the start of your book of of the presence of of gamblers mixing with mixing with baseball players really since the mid nineteenth century?
0: Yeah, but I think that uh, you know starting to answer that with the Black Sox that if Comiskey and Johnson had been friends, that would have been covered up and that would have remained forever a you know one of those points that historians debate was the 1919 world series fixed because we never would have had proof and if that had been the case i think we probably would have had another scandal at some point in the next uh five to ten years because as you said gambling and baseball were you know very closely intertwined in those years they had been since the beginning that the number of fixed games in the early years of the game probably rivaled the number of honest games. I mean, that's a slight exaggeration, but only <laughs> a slight exaggeration. That uh, there was a word uh, that was known to all baseball fans in uh, that era, and we're talking now about the 1870s, 1880s, uh, the word was hippodroming. Mm-hmm. You'll be hard-pressed to find it in a dictionary today, but the few dictionaries that, uh, that have it will tell you that it means the playing of a contest, the result of which has been prearranged. And it was a very common word in the 1870s, and baseball fans would have known it and would have used it and would have seen its uh, presence in a newspaper story and known that this story was about another game where the outcome was uh, very suspicious baseball, had sort of camped that down in the 1880s and 1890s. But once the American and National Leagues merged in 1903, it sort of re-entered the conversation, and it became ever more prevalent and ever more common in the years after that. And the reason for that was because the National Commission didn't want to deal with it. Mm -hmm. The National Commission uh, knew that the rumors of game fixing were bad for the game, but they also knew that if they went digging and proved those rumors to be through, that could potentially be devastating uh, to the game. So what they did was just sort of brush aside the few instances where a manager would bring a player before the league president or before the National Commission and accuse that player of game fixing. The National Commission would always find insufficient evidence and effectively stuck its head in the sand uh, during all these years. And so the gambling became ever more, the relationship between the gamblers and the players and game fixing became ever more commonplace. Because the players looked at these incidents, they looked at players that were brought before league presidents and not disciplined, and they said, well, why shouldn't we do it? There's nothing going to happen even if we get caught. We're probably not going to get caught. But if we do, there's probably not going to happen because look at what, you know, has not happened to other players that have been brought forward. Mm -hmm. So uh, the 1919 World Series was not an aberration. It was uh, in an in." It was an inevitability in the climate of that game. Mm-hmm.
1: You do tell the story of one player in particular, Hal Chase, and how he's somewhat, uh, I would say, representative of how the National Commission before uh, the, the 1919 World Series, how they would handle uh, rumors of, of players fixing games.
0: Hal Chase was as I say in the book, the Babe Ruth of ball game fixers mm-hmm. that you know when it comes to talking about uh, people who may have been suspect uh, when it came to throwing games, uh, Hal Chase is so far set apart from the rest of them that it is really Babe Ruth and everybody else. That it was estimated that he may have been uh, a part of throwing several hundred games in his 15 year major league career. He was never convicted, of course, of throwing even a single one, but people that he had played with said that, you know, several dozen times a year he approached other players or he had plays that uh, his teammates suspected were, you know, aimed at pleasing people who may have bet on the games and may have paid him a hundred or a couple of hundred bucks to uh, do it. If the National Commission wanted the, uh, you know, to prevent the Black Sox scandal from happening, it had its opportunity that twice Hal Chase was brought before the National League president. Once in 1910 by his manager uh, of the uh, Highlanders, that was the American League president, Uh, And then again in 1918 by Christy Mathewson, who was uh, then managing the Reds when Chase was playing for them. Had either of those uh, occasions resulted in the disciplining of Chase or the dismissal of Chase, you never would have had a Black Sox scandal, because... Chase was a star of the first magnitude, and if he got himself thrown out of the game, then other players would have been very wary about uh, engaging in the same type of behavior. But Chase was one of the bigger stars of the game, and the uh, people who ran the game were very reluctant to discipline and bring embarrassment down on the game by disciplining one of its biggest stars.
1: I want to ask another part of the background, uh, uh, Chuck, that that I found interesting, and that's uh, the First World War and its effect on Major League Baseball. And this is stepping back somewhat, but uh, how does this play into the story of the Black Sox?
0: It played in it in an awful lot of tangential ways. Um, the 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 game was on, um, you know. Um, in a very uncertain state mm-hmm. in 1917, 1918, that uh, there was a work or fight order in place, which uh, the federal government said that everyone of draft age, which was 21 to 30, which was about 75 to 80 percent of Major League Baseball, everyone of draft age had to either work in a defense related industry or fight, serve in the armed forces. And, um, it was uncertain in Major League Baseball whether they would even be able to uh, operate in 1918. And a number of players um, took jobs with defense industries where their job was to play for the factory baseball team. And Joe Jackson was one of these and Lefty Williams was one of these and a number of other, uh, you know, major league players were, uh, playing for factory teams in 1918. In other words, they had left their major league team at some point and were playing for these factory teams. This was a real threat to Major League Baseball. That, you know, Major League Baseball was not the corporate Goliath that it is today. It was 16 guys, varying degrees of wealth, some very wealthy from other businesses, others having only the money that they got from ticket sales, that were uh, trying to get pie. And, on uh, the reserve clause meant that they could get by by paying their players as uh, you know little as possible, and very little it uh, it turned out. And the defense industry could uh, you know the factory teams could pay these players almost whatever they want. They weren't bound by the reserve clause. If factory baseball caught on, if there was a. Uh, A yeah, fan base that developed for factory baseball when the major league players started uh, playing for it. It was entirely probable that those factory teams would um continue after the war and continue to lure those players with the promise of uh, higher salaries and off season jobs. Everyone had it, uh needed an off season job in those days so what this meant was that the players were uh sort of embarrassed and punished when they came back to the game in 1919. That, uh, embarrassed in the sense that uh, the owners referred to them as slackers and uh, questioned whether or not they would even bring them back. Somebody who uh, lacked the patriotism to fight and instead would take sanctuary with a uh, Defense industry baseball team was a fairly common uh, plight of owners, and Charles Comiskey said, "I don't even know whether I want these guys back on my team if they wouldn't stand up and fight." And really, what that was was a public negotiating ploy for um, you know offering these salary offering these players depressed salaries in 1919. The other piece of the 1919, or excuse me, the World War One story that had ramifications for 1919, is that Van Johnson made a great number of horrific missteps. And um, that sort of weakened him as, you know, he was called the czar of baseball in those years. Um, and all of the missteps that he made through the nineteen uh, through the World World War One period uh, weakened him, and effectively allowed Charles Comiskey to put together this coalition of owners, National League owners, uh, completely you know a unanimous uh, core of National League owners, and himself and two other American League owners. Um, the Missteps by Johnson during the war allowed Comiskey to put that coalition together.
1: So let's uh, set the plot in motion, Chuck. Uh, how did the, the, the scheme to fix the World Series start?
0: Uh, we're never going to know the answer to that question. <laughs> and anyone who tells you differently is, um, you know, uh, ignoring the evidence. that uh, The players were talking about it throughout the latter part of the 1919 season, that every one of the players that talked about this afterwards, either to Comiskey's private investigators or to uh, the grand jury or to Comiskey himself when they confessed, every one of them said that, uh, you know, the subject came up sort of tentatively a couple of times during August. Uh, Buck Weaver actually told the private investigator that the first he had heard about it was uh, June Long before it was clear the White Sox were going to be in the World Series. Um, the talks got, you know, more and more um, regular and more and more serious. As uh, we moved into the last two, three weeks of the season, there were a number of talks that we know about that took place uh, when the White Sox were in New York in mid-September, when they were in Boston in mid-September, and then there was a meeting on the last weekend of the season, the last Friday night of the regular season, in Eddie Seacott's hotel room in the Warner Hotel where seven of the players were present and on uh, the sort of final together with uh, two of the gamblers who were trying to uh, put the the fix together. And that was where the whole thing finally coalesced. So if you want a starting point, you can uh, probably take that Friday night meeting on the last week of the season. Uh, That's as clear a uh, starting point as we're ever going to have, because from that point forward, the fix was in place.
1: Mm -hmm. And something I got a sense of from the book is that this was never really a well-kept secret. Is that is that accurate?
0: No, there were rumors all over the place. And, uh, you know, the Hotel Sinton in Cincinnati, which was headquarters for the White Sox and for the, you know, writers and the official Major League Traveling Party and such, the lobby of that hotel the night before the first game, you know, looked like the the betting windows at Belmont Park that, uh, you know, it was just crowded with people openly exchanging money. Uh, shouting out the odds, and um, the odds were dropping that they had been heavily in the White Sox favor. And by the evening of the night before the first game, they were almost even money. And then after the White Sox lost that first game, they uh, shifted to Cincinnati's favor. Um, but all of these, uh, you know, rumors were a part of the. Um, environment of a world series that uh in other words the rumors in 1919 may have been a little louder a little more persistent but they were the same rumors that were there in virtually every world series that had ever been played
1: Mm -hmm. so then what led comiskey as you said earlier you know comiskey on the day after the series uh he was looking into uh, uh finding out if his players had had fixed the series so so what led him to take action then
0: Um, that that was Gleason coming to Comiskey. Uh, It was, um, you know, Gleason convinced that, uh, you know, off of all he heard, half of, off of, you know, we don't have any of the particulars, but half of, off of what he uh, put to the players and what the players uh, said to him, that Gleason was uh, convinced that, uh, you know, Gandil, uh, Joe Jackson, Swede Risberg, Cap Felsch, Fred McMullen, Lefty Williams, Eddie Seacott were all compromised. those were the seven players. no one suspected Buck Weaver uh, mm. during the series uh, and Comiskey never suspected Buck Weaver that uh, Buck Weaver was brought into the story when the players started confessing and included Weaver in the, uh, the conversation. Um, when I say that he knew that he you know knew for certain, I'm not sure anyone knew for certain or anyone wanted to fully believe it. But the story as it came out, the mm-hmm. seven players that were involved and, uh, you know, the the money that uh, they had been paid, uh, that was the, you know, the, the story as it came out a year later was the story that Gleason and Comiskey uh, believed on the eve of that, on the uh, end of that World Series. Mm-hmm.
1: So you had mentioned earlier that uh, Comiskey, along with his attorney, they had uh, private investigators, correct, following after the the players in the off season. Is that uh,
0: they did. That yeah. uh, you know, from uh, you know, early November through the last investigation lasted through the winter into the start of the next season, actually, yeah. and trying to determine whether or not these players were you know, exhibiting a uh, sudden uh, wealth that uh, couldn't be explained any other way or, you know, were in any way talking about what had happened. And, uh, you know, the reports all came back that, uh, no, they were not, that they were living pretty much the same life, that uh, Hap Fellship bought a new car, chick Deal had bought a new home, but he claimed it was mortgaged, that, uh you know, Swede Risberg's mistress had a new, uh, you know, nail care business. But, uh, you know, there was nothing that, uh, you know, would indicate that these players had suddenly come into an enormous sum of money and were uh, spending it recklessly.
1: Yeah. So who were then the players that broke? And and why did they, they break and admit that they had been in on the fix?
0: When the grand jury in the fall of 1920 began looking into baseball corruption, and they took up the case on an entirely different matter. There was a late-season game between the Cubs and the Phillies that the Cubs had been warned was crooked. And the Cubs took that matter to the grand jury and said, Would you please investigate this? And the grand jury, again, I said earlier, Charles MacDonald was the chief justice of that grand jury, and he was someone who aspired to be the new chairman of the National Commission. And... Uh so he took up the matter, and then, when writers started saying, as long as the grand jury's looking into this cubs Phillies game, why don't they explore these rumors that we heard last fall so while this was going on, and the early witnesses were not very helpful, they were writers talking about what they knew but also insisting they didn't believe a game could be fixed uh, they were um you know executives that felt they didn't believe that anything had been uh, fixed the Investigation by the grand jury really wasn't going anywhere until a Philadelphia newspaper article uh, that was an as basically an as told to article written by a guy named Billy Mahart who was one of the fringe players in the previous year's fix in the 1919 uh, fix. That he and a guy named Bill Burns, who was a former major league pitcher who knew Chick Gandil and some of the other White Sox, um tried to put together what was already being put together by somebody else. So they lived on the fringes of this fix. And in this article, Marhard said that, uh, yes, the game was fixed. He was present at meetings where, you know, the fix was discussed, where owners were, uh, where players were paid. And that sort of blew the lid off, that this was the first time anyone who claimed any direct involvement in the fix spoke publicly. And that obviously became national news, and that was going to mean that uh, the grand jury's uh, hearings took a dramatically different turn. And this was when Comiskey and Austrian sort of seized control of this, that if, uh, you know, the players are going to be indicted, then we've got to be the people that are, you know, doing the uh, investigating here. And they brought in Eddie Seacott, uh, first of all, because they felt that uh, Secott and it was Uh, Gleason, we believe, that, uh, you know, uh, said that Seacott is the guy that we should uh, speak to first, because Seacott was bearing the shame of this more heavily than anybody else, that uh, he was not the same person in 1920 that he had been in 1919. Um, So they brought Eddie Seacott in, and indeed he broke, and he confessed to uh, his part in the plot, to getting the $10,000, and confessed fully before Uh, Comiskey, an Austrian, and then confessed uh, before the grand jury a couple of hours later. Uh, Next was Joe Jackson, who had indicated an uh, inclination to confess what he knew as early as the 1919 World Series, that, uh, you know, he had uh, tried to see Charles Comiskey, the morning after uh, the series, before he went home, and the speculation was that he wanted to see him to confess to what he knew and what his part in the 1919 uh, series fix was. So he was the second guy in. Same thing. Um, Austrian, Comiskey's attorney, offered him a uh, you know grant of hum- immunity, which Austrian had no authority or power to do, but uh, the players, thinking that Austrian was acting in their interest, believed him. Uh, and they confessed to Austrian and Comiskey and then went over to the grand jury and repeated their story to the grand jury. Lefty Williams came in the next day and told the same story. Those are the only three players that confessed. Hapfels talked to a newspaper reporter and told effectively the same story, but he never uh, testified before the grand jury.
1: Mm-hmm. So something that was interesting to me is uh, we talked about Hal Chase earlier is uh, – uh, and and one thing I loved in the book is is uh, are the portraits you you craft of the the different characters and and you really bring them to life well and and something that was striking is Hal Chase this this serial fixer was a completely amoral character. He did not care one whit if somebody uh found out that he was fixing games. Whereas with Seacott and Joe Jackson, uh you find that they were really uh burdened by the the guilt of what they had done. Yeah,
0: they were. That uh you know, I think if you look to the people who would uh not have borne this heavily you've got uh chick and deal and swede Risberg mm-hmm. but uh you know the rest of them uh, were burned by it
1: uh so one of the the key elements of the black Sox story is the uh, is the quotation uh from this young fan young boy say it ain't so joe and uh, one thing I really enjoyed in the book is is how you investigate this this particular quote as uh, in particular as a historian of journalism. So so what did you find with that?
0: Um, well, the story is um, in Hugh Fullerton's article in the Chicago Herald and Examiner the day after Joe Jackson confessed to the grand jury that, as Fullerton tells the story, that Joe Jackson left the courthouse, there were a crowd of people on the courthouse steps because this story had, um, you know, made the rounds that the White Sox were confessing. And uh, as Joe Jackson left the courthouse, one little urchin, as Fullerton described him, came up and grabbed on uh, Jackson's coat sleeve and said, It ain't true, is it, Joe? And Jackson replied, Yes, son, I'm afraid it is. And the little boy said, Well, I never would have thought it. And uh, that was the genesis for the, uh, you know, the famous Say It Ain't So, Joe line. Uh, The story was reprinted and widely reprinted in newspapers across the country, but the line became not It Ain't True, Is It, Joe, But Say It Ain't So, Joe. Uh, Reporters in those days were such that even when they were stealing a story, they couldn't get it right. Um there's been a lot of debate about whether or not this actually happened, that nobody else heard this, nobody else reported it that first day. It was Fullerton's and Fullerton's alone. And uh, so the consensus of history is that Hal Fullerton made this, uh, that Hugh Fullerton made this up. My take on this is that it really doesn't matter whether he made it up or not. Look at what that story tells us. But in those three lines is the entire Black Sox story as it hit the American consciousness. There is, uh, you know, hurt, betrayal. There is the little boy's loss of innocence. There is the American hero stripped of his aura and dignity. There is the, you know, the... puzzlement and the mystification over, you know, how it could possibly have happened. It's the entire Black Sox story. It's a Shakespearean tragedy there in three lines. that it doesn't matter whether he made it up or not, Uh, you know, that's the story right there. That's the reason it's endured, because those three lines are, you know, that's the capsule story of the Black Sox scandal and the public reaction to it.
1: Well, my next question follows closely from that, and, and uh, you talk about this in uh, one of your later chapters in the book, the, the Black Sox, and particularly Joe Jackson, have had a, a lasting place in our culture. Why is that, do you think?
0: Because it's baseball's eternal mystery that, you know, we started our conversation talking about how uh, baseball fans are fascinated with history, that history is a piece of the sport, that uh, we sit in the games and we uh, compare what's going on now with what happened before, be it yesterday or last year or a uh, hundred years ago, and uh, that So we are fascinated with history as baseball fans. And this piece of history is a a piece that we're never going to resolve. It's baseball's eternal mystery. And it has proven itself insoluble over these 95 years. And the uh, story is never going to crystallize. We're never going to have a full idea because the truth of the matter is, is that there never was a clear picture that I think if everyone who was involved uh, had any firsthand information, had sat down and told their story fully and completely the day after that series ended, we still would have had forty different versions <laughs> of the story because nobody knew what uh, you know was happening because it was ever shifting and ever changing, and the uh, you know the players didn't know who was in and who was out, who was trying and who was not, and uh, it was uh, you know. Um, something that never had clarity, so uh, it's not surprising that it lacks clarity this far out. But in striving to give it as much clarity as we can, we remain fascinated by it. The fact that we'll never fully understand it makes us want to, you know, plummet as uh, deeply and as clearly as we can so that we can understand it as fully as we can. Every little advance is a triumph. Mm-hmm.
1: So let me ask you. Then uh, uh, we're almost out of time. Let me ask you a couple questions that get at the heart of the mystery. Given that you've been you've been working on this for years, uh, did the did the Black Sox lose the series on purpose, or did the Reds win the series?
0: I I think that uh, you know that Eddie Seacott and Lefty Williams were uh compromised in those first two games, particularly Williams in game two. I think after game two the White Sox were trying to win the series. But the fact of the matter is that uh they were so psychologically uh, you know, um distraught, confused, uh, you know, all the rumors had, was were so inside their head that they couldn't have played their best baseball uh, you know during those weeks under any circumstances. The other piece of this is Cincinnati played beautifully Cincinnati mm-hmm. got outstanding pitching in that series from all four of their starters and uh, that's one of the things that's lost in history that uh, you know people have asked uh, the called the title of the book is The Betrayal, Who Was Betrayed? And I say, well, everyone, if you were a piece of this, you felt betrayed. But nobody felt more betrayed than the Cincinnati Reds. And they felt betrayed by history because they were convinced that they were the better team on those eight days in uh, October. And I think they were probably right. I think they probably were the better team on those eight days. And uh, they were convinced that they were deserving a far more from history than their role as accidental champions.
1: Mm-hmm. So the other question that uh, gets at to this this mystery of the Black Sox is is, of course, should Joe Jackson be in the Hall of Fame?
0: Well, what I wrote in a piece uh, you know, a few weeks ago when Rob Manfred declined to reopen the uh... joe jackson case and consider the petition that people had put to him for jackson's reinstatement i think joe jackson is better off outside the hall of fame we put joe jackson in the hall of fame where he unquestionably belongs off his playing record we put him in the hall of fame he becomes one of three hundred twenty five men in the hall of fame and maybe his story with uh... with an ending however happy the ending might be maybe we uh... Put the story aside now. That story is finished. But if Joe Jackson stays on the outside looking in, he remains this iconic, mythic American figure of popular culture, the guy who is uh, people literature like the natural and Jewish Joe in the decades since his death. But more importantly, I think he keeps this conversation alive of, uh, you know, how do we balance mercy and responsibility? You know, how guilty were these players and how uh, deeply and for how long do they pay for what they did in uh, 1919? And how do we incorporate this uh this stain and scandal into our, our history. And I think those are all, you know, fascinating questions and uh, relevant questions and conversations to keep having. Mm
1: -hmm. Chuck, I want to finish with uh, um, the questions or the arguments that you pose at the, at the beginning of the book in the introduction. And that is what are the, what do you see as the legacies of the 1919 world series and the, and the black Sox, not only for baseball, but for American sport. I
0: think the perception of the legacy is that if you cheat, you're going to get caught. Uh, maybe not immediately, but eventually. And, uh, you know, so that cheating isn't going to pay, and it is in uh, the pure and best interests of sport to play the game as it was intended and as we believe everyone is uh, playing it. Um you can look at the steroid scandal and you can believe that because the steroids users have been caught and in uh, many cases punished, uh, even if punished by being, uh, you know, excluded from the Hall of Fame. Or you can take the cynical view and say people are always going to cheat and look at, you know, 95 years after the Black Sox, ballplayers are still cheating, still trying to get an edge. Um, So I think that, uh, you know, that the the legacy is is that uh, human nature remains very complicated. And uh, that is what makes uh, the game and following the game, uh, you know, ultimately so very interesting, that it's played by, you know, humans who uh, possess skills that most of us can only imagine, Uh, And yet, uh, you know, they are still human. And so they have uh, failings and flaws that uh, sometimes uh, undo what their great gifts have allowed them to achieve.
1: You've been listening to an interview with Charles Fountain about his book, The Betrayal, the 1919 World Series and the Birth of Modern Baseball, published by Oxford University Press in 2015. New Books and Sports is part of the New Books Network, which offers dozens of channels of podcast interviews with the authors of new publications on subjects like religion, politics, biography, popular music, and more. Go to newbooksnetwork.com to find the subjects you're interested in. If you like what you heard here, please follow us on Twitter at New Books Sports or friend us on Facebook at facebook.com slash new books and sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week.
0: Step into the world of power, loyalty